Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Junior Wonks, a podcast about American politics and economic policy, hosted by a couple of guys who almost know what we're talking about. My name is Jesse, and I'm a graduate student in economics. My name is Ben Stevens, and I'm a government affairs professional. And this week, we wanted to talk about the issue of persuasion in politics, and which is sort of a buzzword that I feel like we've been hearing about for basically every election cycle as far back as I can remember. And there's sort of this central tension in the way pundits like think about electioneering that's you know there's there's sort of this camp that thinks it's really all about like we just need to on the democrat side anyway we need to turn out voters uh in big droves and then there's this other side that kind of thinks no we need to like flip voters we need to persuade them um and what sort of set me off on this topic was barack obama gave an interview with Ezra Klein, who's now at the New York Times. Um, and a lot of the interview was about kind of Obama's particular thoughts on persuasion and its role in American politics and, and his thoughts on, on just kind of how his politics generally, right? Um, and, you know, he's always been kind of the come together, we have more in common than we have different type person Mm -hmm. but he had this interesting bit that um where he said he basically said and i have the quote here the challenge is is when i started running in 2007 to 2008 it was still possible for me to go into a small town in a disproportionately white conservative town in rural america and get a fair hearing because people just hadn't heard of me They might say, what kind of name is that? They might look at me and have a set of assumptions, but the filter just wasn't that thick. And he kind of goes on to say that, that, yeah, it was was just sort of conducive to him being able to have like real conversations with folks in Southern Illinois uh, when he was a senator and across the country. And like, I, I think part of maybe the charitable read on that is that I think Twitter wasn't as much a force to be reckoned with. In 2007, 2008, I think Fox News hadn't gone completely off the deep end. Um, maybe, maybe that's some some rosy revisionist history <laughs> on my part about Fox News. But I, I kind of, I was, I was kind of curious about some of these statements because, and and I thought we could kind of start by talking about like the yeah. evolution. Well, first we should kind of talk stake out what we mean by persuasion. But then I think it'd be kind of interesting to talk about our takes on how the role persuasion played in, you know, 2012, 2016, 2020. um, And maybe where we see it going in the future. Yeah. I mean, I think just on that initial point, my first two thoughts, which are really two sides of the same coin are that it's not that people were more open-minded. It's just the issues that people have difficulty having open-mindedness about we're less critical to politics than they are currently. Just when those people would have seen Barack Obama, regardless, it's not just him, it's any politician. They just would not have associated Democrat versus Republican as essentially where do you stand in the culture war, which is, I mean, of course, there's always been an element of that. That's a good, it's been electorally beneficial to the right wing for many decades, but I mean, this was a time when you had legitimate significant or a significant number of just fairly conservative Democrats in the US government. John Brew in Louisiana was a random guy who was in there. There's just all sorts of people. There were Heath Schuler, the NFL guy, was who voted was always like challenging Pelosi for the Speaker of the House spot in the mid two thousands just a random conservative guy. But that just the point being is that you wouldn't just, if you went into a small town in rural America and just said Republican and Democrat, yeah, they tended to be Republican, but it just wasn't, the association wouldn't be there the way it would be today. Where if you said, I mean, for God's sakes, Biden is the leader of our party and people think of Democrats as socialist and, you know, I don't even just whatever crazed thoughts the right wing has about these things 
But um, yeah, I mean, that's my initial reaction. I would just say that I don't think people were more tolerant in 2000. I, I'm incredibly skeptical that people in rural America were tolerant in 2007. Yeah. yeah. So I think, I think that gets to a really uh, good point, which is, yeah, I think there's something not quite disingenuous about this um, because Obama does allude to this in the interviews, but like Obama and Hillary and everyone else in both parties in 2008 was not running on a platform of like same sex marriage. It just like, wasn't a thing. Um, and, and, you know, further like, like Obama was not outright supportive of of things like blm like black lives matter when it first hit the scene in in 2014 um and that was him after he had pivoted fairly significantly to being more woke as as you might describe it yeah in the second term for sure and and again you know he says this in the interviews like i became more outspoken on some of the gun stuff after um uh oh god i'm forgetting new newport yes um new new town one of those that's that's a that's an indictment of america new right town. There that i new town thank you that i can't remember uh which mass shooting was which um but i mean yeah and he says this in the interviews like sometimes i had to choose or at least in his mind he felt like he had to choose between like how do i sell american people on affordable health care or, or or rather do i push an affordable health care agenda or do i try to push uh you know trying to enlighten them about like the the pitfalls of of like america's history on race you know like so yeah it's kind of interesting the way he feels like he made those trade-offs where not really sure well i think so i think there's two brief things on that so the first is it's instructive to go back and watch the bill clinton ads from the 90s and and you'll be like oh all right, I see why this man won like half the Southern states. Um, but secondly, I think, I, I believe it was a Matty Iglesias take or s- someone like that who had this statement a couple of years ago where they said, you know, prior to 2016, the entire philosophy of liberal politics was avoid these cultural issues. Not, I mean, not be conservative on them necessarily, but just understand that conservatives are trying to dirty like the the heather mcgee metaphor of the draining you know getting people to purposely reduce public resources out of a fear of helping people that are different from them you know classic right-wing political strategy so liberals tried everything they could do to kind of avoid that yeah um and i I just think that without beating that dead horse too much i just think that the relationship there and him getting this warm reception is just very notable. Yeah. I think, I think that makes sense. And, and that's an interesting thing too, like not to sort of validate necessarily that, that view that I think you said was Matty Iglesias. Um, But so, I mean, it is a fact that, and actually there was just polling out today. Um, from some, you know, analytics group that that basically did a huge mass polling of, you know, uh, the American electorate. They essentially found it is 56% culturally conservative and 52% economically liberal. So if you think about that classic two axes Mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, cultural and and economic stances. So I feel like, and I feel like that was... um, something that I, maybe I won't go so far as to attribute it to, to sort of like an internal understanding uh, or an outright understanding among the democratic party. But I do feel like what you're saying is very true that up until essentially Trump, um, the Democrats ran on those economically liberal uh, things. You know, it was, it was about, it, they kind of avoided the identity politics, if you want to call it that, or just like the ideologically tinged, uh, issues in their campaigning. And I think that one, one of the ways in which the conversation on persuasion has been evolving is like it's different types of persuasion now. Um, so maybe it would be good to 
actually get to our definitions or whatever come yeah. up with a working I feel like the 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 extreme shorthand of this is prior to 2016 every single mainstream political ad from the democratic side was designed for a 57 year old white person in Iowa a hundred percent of all ads that they ever did and that's I feel like that's the shorthand for how how this change that we're referring to yeah so and I think you know when we talk about persuasion I think there's a trap a lot of people fall into where they sort of conflate um political persuasion with like civility politics. And I think when you say persuasion, a lot of people have in mind, you're talking about like, oh, I should go sit down with like a racist, proud boy, Trump supporter, whatever, and be like, hey, here's why you shouldn't hate black people and immigrants and like talk to them <laughs> and try to like get them to change their mind in this really cutesy, enlightening way. And like, that's that's absolutely not the case. Um, Get them on an Aaron Sorkin style debate own. <laughs> yeah. Where they admit that they're wrong and then you win. Yeah. Like there, there has been research done in psychology, in political science um, that that type of stuff, that, that type of, of just, um, yeah, kind of the, the free marketplace of ideas, ideal of, of like the best, you know, debater wins. It doesn't really work for changing anyone's minds. There's also um, <clears throat> some poli-sci research that was done after the 2016 election, which essentially found a lot of null effects of a lot of that like typical interpersonal campaigning stuff of, you know, you go to door to door, you make phone calls, stuff like that. It, even, even a lot of ads um, really don't do much to budge um, you know, public opinion. So I feel like when we talk about persuasion, it's, it's not that type of like, you know, interpersonal, just intervention in someone's political beliefs and getting them to do a quick 180 after a conversation. I, I feel like it's more like, you know, to, to like build the steel man here. It, it's more like you pass policies and you craft your political agenda with the intent of, you know, pleasing or materially benefiting certain groups of voters. Mm -hmm. um, where if you say, I want to persuade Republican voters, you think about what platform do I craft that is going to, they're going to read it and they're going to say, dang, this is in my best interest to vote for this or something like that. Um, and I think, and as you said, I think there's a couple ways to do that. You can appeal to pro-worker and you know pro-working class i guess policies um you know paid family leave uh stronger support for unions whatever um the you know the economic axis or you can do that through cultural stuff um which i think the republican party has been really good at uh goes without saying <laughs> um but i mean what's your take do you feel like that's kind of the the fairest way to think about persuasion or the way to do it the most justice to give it the best fighting chance. Yeah. I mean, I almost feel like you laid out a lot of what it isn't. I think the key to me is a political campaign on the basis of persuasion is designing a campaign that is going to target marginal voters and tar and creating a campaign that will activate the sentiments within those marginal voters that align with your agenda as opposed to the opponent's agenda. Yeah. So, and that's, that's an interesting thing too, because then, uh, um, so I guess, you know, that makes sense to me. And in that framework, then we could really just see, I mean, like turnout pushes, right. That's just a conversion of would be non-voters. Right. So that's sort of like persuasion at the extensive margin and then flipping you know from the democrats perspective you know flipping republicans green party libertarians that's like persuasion at the intensive margin or something like that to to kind yeah. of throw it into an econ framework um which is also interesting to me because i was in doing the research for this i was reading up a little bit 
about these kind of debates of should you target the voters who are going to stay home or should you target the other parties? Um, which as a side note, I, I feel like is sort of like a, a split between the left end and the centrist end of the Democratic Party. Like I feel like the centrists want to go after the Republican and, and like toss up voters and the leftists are really big on like non-voters. Yeah, let's get the turnout. Um, let's register new voters. But um, I don't. I mean, like, how much do you think? How much do you think persuasion affected past elections? I mean, you can take your pick. Like, do you, do you have any hot takes about? Kind of. I mean, unfortunately, I think it's a, a situation though where you find yourself like creating a definition of persuasion that's so broad that it could just affect because for example i would say that donald trump won the election in 2016 more as a result of persuading voters than turning people out just in a mathematical sense right but i don't like persuasion is not that is the way i would describe what he did is i i would say that he correctly identified that there are a significant block of swing type voters who lean right on culture lean left on economics i mean these are just because most people are going to vote the way they're going to vote right like excluding the 80 90 percent or whatever of the swing voters or of the people that are left those are the swing voters i wouldn't really describe trump's campaign as a campaign of of persuasion but it was persuasive to those cross-pressured voters. They really appreciated a campaign of that style and that they really did not appreciate a campaign of a Romney or McCain or even like Bush, you know, relatively. Well, yeah. And, and so, I mean, I think it, it just depends on how you want to describe that. I mean, I, I think a lot of this gets lost in, the, to me at least, the, the key thing here is that Swing voters and moderates, they're not like centrists in a traditional sense. I think that's very key. They have just basically, essentially, they're just kind of, this is very disparaging, but they're kind of just dumb. They just have, they don't pay, they don't really pay attention to politics. They probably have a lot of odd views. Like you run, it's like the classic thing where they interview someone and they're like, you know, I'm pro war, but like Medicare for all would be great or something weird. Like, I don't know what's like a, the weirdest combination you could think of. Not, you know, George Bush did nine 11, but you know, Trump is mean to him. So that's why I'm a Trump Republican, but I loved Obama or something weird like that. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think once you, when you have that as undergirding, I, I think, or sorry, that was a very long winded way of saying that basically in my opinion, the, the primary pool of persuadable voters are those sorts of people. So I think that just persuasion in the, in the manner that a lot of people would think of off the top of their head doesn't apply, but there is an element of you're convincing those people to win by activating you know, different, different issues and different political themes. I don't right. know what you think. I think I think that makes sense and I think you also brought up kind of a, an interesting point which is that um or, or sort of at the beginning of, of what you were saying it, it occurred to me to uh, note as kind of a disclaimer that I, I feel like part of the way that this conversation happens is a little bit stilted because it everyone kind of uh has you know, the thing that they think the Democratic Party should be doing, which again, I, I think does fall pretty neatly on, you know, which end of the Democratic Party spectrum are you on um, from left to center. But um, I also think it's the case that, you know, a lot of times these effects kind of occur in tandem. Like in 2016, I mean, you know, you can talk about Hillary's weakness with, you know, the black turnout, which is, again, like that's that's a non-voter issue um, relative to Obama 2012. Or you can talk about her weakness with the working class and, and with the white working class in general. Um, and like both of those contributed to her, 
you know, loss uh, in the electoral college. But, you know, from, from like, I, I'm always a little skeptical when, when people want to say, you know, this political outcome was because of this group of voters. I'm always uh, like, I don't know, it's tough to isolate that. It's tough to actually well, know what the counterfactuals are. I mean, I just find myself, though, taking a third way style position on this, though, where I think, I think, I think the centrists are right, or not, maybe not the centrists. I think 2016, yes, if Hillary had literally the best black turnout ever, then she would have won very narrowly. But the thing that was much more significant was losing like 800,000 people in central Wisconsin. And just from a mathematical point of view, winning back, you could win back a smaller share of those people and it would still you know, be easier. But my third way take is that I think, I think it's right that you need to win back those like white working class moderates. But I think that you could theoretically win them back on a platform that included fairly left-wing policy, particularly in the economic space. Yeah. You know, and so I think that that's my third way take is that just a lot of this stuff is very contingent on things and it's possible that it would be difficult with the realignments that have occurred recently, right, to have that style of campaign. But I, I don't know. That's that's my third way take on it. Yeah. So, okay. So I have an interesting kind of qualified agreement with you. I think I think that, yes, I think I agree with that perspective that like you can snap up some of those, you know, moderate or, or frequently flip voters with the more kind of economically liberal messaging. But I think I'm pessimistic that you can do that and retain some of the more kind of ideologically and culturally leftist messaging in that the Democratic Party has opted for, I would say, especially in the last couple of years. So like... Yeah. And I actually think 2020 is a great example of this where um, Biden was running on, you know, just in a lot of ways, it, like a very, like a progressive, but a kind of recycled, you know, version of like the pro union, you know, pro families, pro healthcare stuff that I feel like we've been hearing in every presidential election since at least 2008. Um, and did terribly with Hispanic voters, right? Who are uh, largely more culturally conservative than the average American. And not just, you know, yeah. the Cubans in Florida. Like, it, you know, they, uh, I read, I think it was one of the articles you sent me about, like it was Colombians and Venezuelans and, and like Hispanics pretty much across the board. Yeah, there, there was honestly a, a slightly... I don't want to say it was concerted, but there was an odd refusal to acknowledge the fact that it was not just right-wing Miami Cubans. Yeah. And it was definitely a thing across the entire country. Yeah. And I think, so I think that speaks to, again, I, you know, I think this is, this is, uh, I don't know how well-informed this dose of pessimism is, but I, I just feel like, I mean, you know, my thing that, we've both talked about is, is like people have very, very poor, the average American voter has an extremely poor grasp on, maybe, maybe I shouldn't be so, uh, let me rephrase that, uh, is, is disinterested largely. Yeah. They just don't in like about the, in like the technocratic, like machinations of politics and of running the economy. And most of them are not in a position to like really understand what Jay Powell is saying, you know, like on, like on a deeper level um, when he talks about things or, or Janet Yellen or anything. I mean, like, I don't even understand what <laughs> they're talking about half the time. Right. Um, and so I think you just have people where if you're offering them a, a, like a platter, that's, that's like half, you know, economically liberal platform ideas, which they like, but don't totally maybe understand or 
the you know, vague association right like, they yeah, can't really see what the tangible impact is you know on their lives kind of ex ante and then on that same platter you have a bunch of really progressive you know social ideas that they are not about and and i think that voters just have a more visceral reaction to one of those two things and i think that's yeah. i think that that's the reaction that wins um i mean it's the same if you look at it kind of on, on the inverse like economic policy that the republicans have been pushing as long as i've been alive has just pulled terribly with americans like nobody wants um tax cuts for the rich really like nobody wants you to strip their health care um mm-hmm. yet there were however many you know hundreds and certainly of are of very them. very exercised once that becomes a real possibility right and yet you know the republicans can still count on like you know 49 percent of the vote or whatever every single year um and it was I, there was that crazy statistic about however many hundreds of thousands or or millions or you know i don't know um like people who were on like enrollees in obamacare right who would not have health insurance if not for obamacare who then voted for trump in 2016 so well yeah i mean it's it's possible that the culture warification the cultural divides are just have reached such a threshold that it's it's just done and dusted and the theory i'm espousing is unworkable and frankly it would be really difficult and it's hard to say i mean i feel bad advocate some of the it's like the um i mean for god's sakes jeremy corbyn almost won in his first election against boris johnson as like probably the most left-wing politician in like any country that is similar to america or england in a really long time yeah I mean, I just like barring South America. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> of any like rich industrialized country. Sure, sure. And he ran a campaign of basically just like socialism, you know, but also was like campaigning on stuff like more cops. And like, it's possible that that just would never be a campaign that you would see in today's age. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's different. It's like, I don't know what would happen if there was a, a candidacy that was run where it was like Bernie Sanders, but was just like fairly conservative on some issues. I don't know. I mean, it's just difficult to, to see what happens. I mean, you have, I mean, uh, Eric Adams obviously just won the mayoral election by tacking to the center in some areas Yeah, in New York city. Um, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to know. I mean, I, I always, I always find myself going back to the fact that there is something it indicates to me that something has gone wrong when voters, when the current political alignment has translated to voters of color shifting toward Trump more than they have toward any Republican in many years. And just yeah. like of educated white people becoming Democrats. It just makes you think about like what I know that's like kind of an unrelated thing and something we've kind of discussed in the past, but. I don't know. We've kind of found ourselves off on a tangent. We should go back into the persuasion specifically, but it's, it's just interesting. It's, it's interesting. It's hard to know because even the, as we're going through this now, I'm I'm thinking about it and and what would, what would have been true in the 2016 election? It's just so hard because I can easily view a world where Hillary ran a different campaign and then just won. And then like, I don't know what politics would have been like, you know, it's just, it's just hard to for to, to say like, it's just hard for me to know like the persuasion that would have worked in that election probably would not work in the 2024 election and just like had 2016 gone differently, a different type of persuasion would have probably worked better last election. I know that's kind of a meaningless jargon almost, but I don't really know how, how else to say it. No, I, I think you're right. And I think, I mean, to kind of follow this tangent to its conclusion, I think, one of the issues is so much of this kind of punditry and speculation on what works and what doesn't is always, I mean, it's always backward looking, right? Like right now people are talking about how we should approach the 2022 midterms based on how the 2020 general went. And 
you know, in 2024, they'll be talking about well in 2020. And, and by that point, you're four years removed. And I feel like, I mean, you know, obviously the cultural tides shift and, and that's what polling during election years is for. But I, I don't know if it's, I, I mean, I don't know how well these, yeah, these kind of grand unified theories of persuasion hold up ever because I think, uh, yeah, I mean, what good is a theory that doesn't have super well, great like- predictive power? And I don't think anyone could have predicted. No one did predict 2016. No one predicted 2020 really either. Uh, I mean, the Biden victory, yeah, but the actual underlying demographic shifts, I don't think anyone saw coming. So, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's weird. It's like after 2004, I feel like Democrats for a couple of years shifted to just getting a completely fire hydrant shaped white dude who had a cowboy hat run in every election possible for the next couple of years. And then they had their biggest presidential win in 20 years by having Obama run. You know, it's just hard to know, you know, Republicans after they lost to Obama, their goal was to win Hispanics. And then, well, they ultimately did end up winning Hispanics, more Hispanics, weirdly. But they went about that by running an, a neo-fascist candidate as opposed to a pro-immigration business guy. Yeah. Um, so, you know. All right. That, so, so back to back to persuasion. What do you still want to hit on? We've got our little uh, short list here of. Um, I think maybe side topics is politics about persuading uh, voters or about persuading politicians. Oh, yeah. This is kind of an interesting one. Well, okay, yeah. So so I guess um Yeah, as pessimistic as I might be about <laughs> persuading voters, I I I think when people talk about persuading politicians, like this is the romanticized view Joe Biden has about like dueling it out verbally on the Senate floor and just like, I'll convince Mitch McConnell to not screw me over with every fiber of his being. And like, that's the thing that I'm incredibly dubious of. And, you know, again, I did find uh, one or two just kind of articles about this. It, you know, that essentially, I mean, the upshot uh, is that, that kind of like motivated reasoning that process of of persuasion from you know like logic just doesn't really happen in politics i mean people have essentially um you know come up with uh theories and models and stuff that that basically said politicians are just like us they have really strong priors they are pretty entrenched in those priors um and when they've done surveys of you know uh politicians they essentially find that they are super biased towards their prior attitudes when interpreting information which like uh setting aside the the big elephant in the room of the structural issues of american politics with the electoral college the senate uh and and the house uh, all being biased towards Republicans. Okay, actually, I'm not sure if the Electoral College is. I feel like I read something that said actually it isn't. It's just biased towards small states or something. But either way, for sure, like the Senate and the House. Well, dep- are- it depends on the demographic, how, how things break. And because of shifting state populations, it could change. Yeah. I feel like this is also, and I'm not a poli-sci person, so I might butcher this, but you know the thing in poli-sci where it's like, representative versus delegate theories of elected officials or something like that. It's Mm -hmm. like, do you elect them to essentially like check in on their constituents and, and just like do whatever their constituents want in the moment? Or do you sort of elect them because you trust their conscience and their expertise and you want them to go and like make the decisions for you. And I feel like if you want the latter, then like, yeah, sure. (laughs) I guess well, that's American. a more technocratic kind yeah. of Yeah. But like in the real world where <laughs> like everyone's trying to get Diane Feinstein to do literally anything for California and like people are trying to get uh Republican senators to just like not like defend Trump so 
what's the word vigorously for? yeah vigorously yeah, I, I like arduously yeah vociferously um yeah yeah i just i don't know i i don't feel like persuading politicians is a realistic goal to have i feel like the sense that it's real is the sense that like if you put forward if you, if you find some banal issue that no one gives a shit about it's not super hard for committee the committee and the ranking member of the committee to agree on some bill that's kind of minor and in that sense politicians can persuade each other i wouldn't really describe it as persuasion i would describe it as just a materialist a transaction like it's possible in politics there is always the option of particularly in the american system where you cooperation from by virtue of the fact that the minority can fuck over the majority with obstruction it's you have a significant amount of bargaining power as the minority to if you agree to do something as the minority you can shape it pretty significantly it's is that is true of the american political system so you could you can envision a world i mean people always say this but the the eight most or i guess yeah like the eight most moderate the four moderate most moderate democrats and most moderate republicans could functionally control the entire u.s government and at this point with how evenly divided the house is so could the house by just saying we will do nothing unless you do exactly what we say and i mean it would be a, a high risk high reward strategy but you know kind of getting off topic a little bit but but the point being is that there is in our system, there is an ability of folks to have reach an agreement uh, on these things. But just in terms of a political, from a political theory standpoint, I would say that any sort of left-wing case of politics is very different than this. A, a left-wing idea of politics, in my opinion, would be something along the lines of politicians are a replaceable cog in a machine meant to carry out the will of the people versus what you're describing, which unfortunately is much more like contemporary America. It's, do I like, it's more about, does this candidate seem like a cool person that I want to be supporting in some vague cult cultural sense? Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, there's a whole Pandora's box we could open up here about, yeah, politics is persuasion versus politics is power and, and, where the left and right and center agree and disagree on their sort of meta approaches to party politics. But I think that would have to wait for another episode. Um, Agreed. So why don't we get to the fun part of our episode? Get to dessert. <laughs> the dessert for Ben and I, which is, as always, the worst take we could find that was fit to print. Yeah. <laughs> this, one, this one. All right. Okay. So this is from Bloomberg opinion. Uh, it's <laughs> title at Tyler Cowan university. No one would have tenure. And then subtitle. If you could start an institution of higher learning from scratch, what would it look like? Guess who the author is? It's Tyler Cowan. <laughs> uh, off the bat, just Trump University is the first thing that springs into mind. Defrauding tens of millions of dollars out of people for a fake degree. Yeah. Okay. So I love that. I, <laughs> okay. I have a lot of thoughts on this. It, just the absurdity of this situation. This is exactly the type of shit that I don't think Tyler Cowen and Alex Tabarrok and the rest of the libertarian crew over at George Mason realize but this is exactly the type of shit that people that makes people want to not listen to a single thing economists say is that we have people just going on Bloomberg opinion was like, hey, Tyler, what do you want to write about? And he was like, I'm just going to do like a 500 word thought experiment where I just imagine what a hypothetical cool university would look like. And they were like, sounds great. We'll put it in the paper. Like what? <laughs> Tyler University, all the girls would be hot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it would be all hot uh, tried outs except for me. Uh, <laughs> and, and 
Chad uh, libertarian economist. Yes, only the chattiest. <laughs> the Milton Friedman club would be Fred full. <laughs> um, do you okay? You should. Your the quote you liked comes earliest. I will, so let's talk about this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, I think it's just fun. Actually, I just want to also read the the first sentence because yeah, it's just kind yeah, of yeah. funny. A funny formulation. It's just a classic. It's almost like Megan McArdle-ish. <laughs> yeah. Megan McArdleian, the first sentence. If you were to design a university from scratch, what might it look like? It's just like the way, just the odd, I don't even know the right way of describing it, but just thinking of Tyler Cowen just like clacking away on his keyboard, like, yeah, hmm, this will be a good sentence to get people like in the mood for some cantankerous discussion of a hypothetical university it's just well, and really he, yeah and he says in the first the first paragraph the idea isn't necessarily to have a model for other schools to follow but rather an experiment assume that various legal contractual and accreditation constraints do not stand in your way he's literally philosophy 101ing this like he's yeah. like let's throw out the entirety of the real world all the experience in education that a, a lot of people who have PhDs in education and PhDs in, in economics who work in education departments, like they know a thing or two. He's like, no, I'm going to use the old cranium for this one. Yeah. Is that a real zany idea? And then, and then he talks about like, Oh, each student would have a GitHub certification page. <laughs> he's is it, we would, we would expel anyone who doesn't demonstrate B grade competence in their work. Like, this is so bad. <laughs> yeah, actually, this this makes me wonder what he, where he comes down on the college's signaling debate. I um, think if I had to guess, I would say he thinks that it is currently mostly about signaling. And I think this feeble proposal is like his thought up version of how we would make it more substantive and less like about our, signaling. our country would own if we had young men and women thinking like this. We had a GitHub page for every student. <laughs> yeah. If every student was Mark Zuckerberg, imagine how good our world would be. Um, so I'll, I'll dive in here with, uh, but I, I, on that point though, Mark, he probably thinks like that is the ideal way for someone to go through college, just quitting oh, yeah. college halfway through because they invent something that makes them one of the richest people in human history while simultaneously destroying the world. Yeah. In a pretty significant manner. <laughs> he, he probably thought that that July 4th uh, video of Mark Zuckerberg on the stupid board thing with the American flag was like that super rad. Like, That's good. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> Great. Very cool. Um, very legal. Yeah. So my, the, the quote I pulled is, the very best instructors could earn three hundred dollars to $400,000 a year. They might attract students through their research or with their active online presence, or even by helping students negotiate online courses from other institutions. The students themselves would judge the efficacy of those investments. Faculty would also be paid for mentoring students, as each student would choose a small circle of advisors to serve as, to serve as guides to the system. So the funny part about this is this is a classic op-ed writing move, very reminiscent of actually David Brooks in this one, because this was a tell that this is written entirely about himself. So A, starting with they could earn three to $400,000 a year. I think that's chosen very specifically because that's the beginning range of being in the top 1%. I don't know if that's intentional, but that's also, that's but also the a, range for, for like, surprise, surprise, a tenured economics professor at like a top, I don't know, let's say 30 40 university probably what they're paying him at fucking whatever yeah yeah george mason yeah so so that i think is that comes through they might or with their active online presence again about himself because he talks all the time about how his active online because i my understanding is he's not like a prolific researcher really He's more of just like a dude who thumbs out weird takes and like has garnered a lot of attention over the past. Yeah. Through him, those takes. Yeah. So the background here, the required reading for all you listeners at home is uh, Tyler Cowen and Alex Tabarrok, who are two libertarian or libertarian leaning econ profs at 
George Mason University, which is itself a, a very libertarian leaning department, started this blog called Marginal Revolution back in the 2000s at some point. And it definitely like that, along with uh, what's his name, Dunbar's uh, Freakonomics blog, were like all the rage in terms of, yeah, kind of pop econ stuff but they, the hike of like the malcolm gladwell era yeah exactly like, exactly but counterintuitive like, finding right but these guys i mean they've definitely done the thing where again the thing that like economics as a profession gets bashed for i think somewhat deservedly which is just stepping way outside their zone of expertise to comment on just the most random stuff and comment on it with like a very authoritative air um and so, you know, like Tyler Cowen is a very smart guy. He's very well-spoken. Like I've, I've heard him on podcasters. He actually has a podcast that I think is pretty good. Um, but every once in a while, he just dishes out a take like this where I'm just like, what? <laughs> what was the point, yeah. man? Yeah, he's smart enough to realize like he's, he's smart enough to know when something's like an insane loser of an art of a take and just like knows to kind of jettison it. But I just think, I just think the, the little like glimpse into him, just the, the amount that he's thinking of like, well, like I did end up succeeding, but that was through chance. But like, if we set up a system that, you know, encouraged the best, like I would be even people like me would have an even better chance to flourish under this system. I also and think on that level of, of, cause I think you're right. And I hadn't even thought about that from, from kind of like the, doing the armchair psychologizing of him. Like I was, I was reading the, the, these paragraphs and I was like, I don't know a single grad student or junior, junior faculty member who doesn't have tenure that would be like thrilled for this. Cause he, the paragraph before he says instructors would not have tenure, but would have to compete for students. So he's doing the, the like naive reductio to like market mechanisms and, and some sort of competitive environment. So they would offer them classes and services that would help them graduate, improve the quality of their you know, certification pages on GitHub. They're compensated on the basis of how many students they could attract. Can't see why that would be a bad incentive. Moving on. Yeah. Uh, in a manner suggested by Adam Smith in 18th century Scotland. Great basis for modern education. And right, so, yeah. this thing, so he's basically saying, hey, you know how you have all these teaching responsibilities you're trying to publish your work. You're trying to get tenure as, you know, like a fresh faced faculty member. Oh, you also have to compete for students by offering like the, the coolest classes that they all want to take. And you also have to make yourself available for online courses. Oh, and you also have to, you know, mentor students and all this stuff. Like I was reading this and I was like, have you talked to a single other academic I, I just cannot imagine any professor reading this and being like, yeah, that sounds great other than him. Wait, also, I want to just read this last sentence because you know who this makes me think of? It makes me think of a friend, a former friend of mine in high school who used to always pull this little trick. And it's a, the last couple sentences. Am I sure that my fantasy university or am I sure that my fantasy university, if it ever became a reality, would work? No, of course not. So I encourage you to come up with your own proposal. Yeah. And it's like, it just, this, this weird thing of like really smart libertarian guys, like have this odd belief that if like you can't come up with a better alternative, even if an idea is bad, it's like better than doing nothing. Yeah. And it's like, no dude, sometimes if you just have a terrible idea, like just don't do that. And like, that is yeah. better than like, it's obviously would be better to do nothing than do something terrible. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is absolutely one of those cases where like the burden of proof is 100% on you to defend this idea you're proposing. And then, yeah, as you say, they, they shift the burden of proof where they're like, well, if you can't disprove my idea, if you can't tear it down and build something better, it's like, I don't want to. This is a bad idea. This is this is my other favorite little tidbit. And then we can we can stop um, because he says the school would hire online instructors, too many of them from poorer countries and working at lower wages. So you might take French from a tutor in Senegal or have a high school teacher from Tamil Nadu. I don't know where that is. I'm not as well-traveled as him. Read your essays and offer writing tips. So I... It's in India. Okay, that's I uh, assumed. Um, 
yeah, I love this. He's like, what's, what's the problem in academia right now is there's a scarcity of tenure track jobs that are being replaced by underpaid lecturers, adjuncts, whatever. What's the solution? Do away with tenure entirely and have mo like more heavily outsource the course load. I just, I mean, respect his, uh, I guess, respect his commitment to, to the bit or whatever. Yeah, like maybe this is a troll. Like, to, or his like commitment to outsourcing everyone, even if it means outsourcing <laughs> his boys. Outsourcing jobs. himself. Yeah, I've been outsourced to a man, an Indian man, the Indian libertarian man who will work yeah. for a, a paltry 85,000 instead of 385,000. I'm just imagining Tyler sitting in front of like a button that says outsource. And he's like, I know what I have to do. I just don't know if I have the strength to do it. Yeah. Uh, just absolutely canning himself. Um, to own the libs. <laughs> to own the libs, man. As with all things in life. Yeah, I. If it ever became reality, would work? Of course not. This is a fun one. Um, kind of harmless. Just Tyler Cowen being goofy, the goofy weirdo to, that he is. We had to give the the final note is that we briefly considered touching on the uh, interesting Barry Weiss piece of interviewing the singer of Mumford and Sons, who I guess yeah. got canceled randomly. He like self canceled really, and quit the just, band. Just, just for the record, just really weird. Like, why are you such a like a hardened reactionary? It's just like this random Mumford and Sons guy. Like, what what's up with that? I can't wait twenty years from now to just recount the entirety of Barry Weiss's like supervillain origin story, of which this will be but a chapter. <laughs> but yeah, I, she just like trolls the internet looking for anyone who's been canceled that she can like bring on her show talk about and remind everyone how like the new york times bullied her or whatever she does man man it's it's a grist yeah it's uh she's i don't even know i feel like she's in the category of just like not well or like yeah yeah she's weird. she's in the category of takes are bad 10 times out of 10 <laughs> There is, there is, I feel like that's, it's like too easy to dunk on her. Like every yeah. once in a while, even the, the clown crew at like the New York times opinion page, like they can whip out a good one every once in a while. Her nah. Only bad takes. Only bad takes. Um, all right. That's it for this episode, guys. Uh, thank you for listening and we will see you next week.